Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Animal Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have one of my favorite guests, Dr. John Swiegel. Now, if you know John and if you're in, if you spend a career in DOE, you can't help but know John. He was at Sandia. He's a, a PhD in nuclear applied physics, physics, applied physics, and he was at Sandia. He was in the design program at Livermore, and he worked in DOE Intel and retired out of Savannah River, and he knows more about adversary nuclear weapons and their programs than just about anybody. Uh, and with Maybe. that, oh, you, hmm, don't be so humble, John. You're too humble. You're, uh, you know, you and I talk pretty frequently, and uh, uh, this, I gather is- you're your knowledge from our frequent conversations. This is the evasiveness of someone who's been in intelligence. (laughs) I don't know if I know much about that. (laughs) So today we were going to talk about, instead of talking sort of the diplomatic side, the State Department side of arms control, we were going to sort of focus on the more technical sides of, of arms control. And then this you know, in a similar vein, the more technical side of what do we do about the new tripolar system? And do we even know what we need to do quite yet? And so with that, let me sort of kick it off to you. I know you've got a a big article that you're working that you're, I've been pushing you to submit it. And that deals with this very thing. Is arms, is future arms control even a possibility? Is it feasible? Uh, given Look, the circumstances I, I mean, I, we're in. So you take it away. Is arms control feasible? Absolutely. I mean, it. Uh, there are those uh, for, for uh, uh, honestly held reasons don't, are not enthusiastic about nuclear arms control, but I think I, I would count myself among the people who think that arms control as part of the general suite of things that we do to manage nuclear security has a role. It plays a role. And uh, it plays a role in terms of the uh, transparency that accompanies nuclear arms control agreements and the surrounding monitoring and verification and consultation processes. But it also can prevent us from you know the problem of arms racing, Alexei Arbatov had a had a recent paper, and uh, he he started he opened his paper by reaching back to some comments from uh, um, Robert McNamara, where he said, you know, if we'd known what the other side was doing, I, I don't think we would have built as many nuclear weapons. One could say today that. Uh, what we call national technical means, 
including intelligence and open source information um, and exchanges that uh, we could we could say, well, this is this is much easier to follow now. But I think the story right now on the Chinese and their 300 some new silos in northern China, uh, we're going to be asking ourselves what's going in there. How many warheads per missile? Um, how many silos are filled? And uh, so there's value in transparency and getting the numbers right and and uh, so that we understand each other. And then talking, the associated talking. I mean, it's not all just Churchill's jaw-jaw. Some of this is, is very useful discussions and consultations. So your premise, and I think this is, you know, we've had Kerry Karchner on who spent a year as an arm, or he spent a career as an arms control negotiator at the State Department. And very similar to what you said, Kerry has said, well, you know, arms control is useful because, like you said, it allows us some transparency. We sort of understand what the adversary is, you know, doing and what they might have. Uh, Because our other option is, you know, guessing. And then he says, you know, it allows us to sort of talk and we may never understand them perfectly well. And I think the history of the Cold War is an example of never really understanding the Soviets that well and them never really understanding us. That problem's probably 10 times worse with the Chinese. Uh, But, you know, so those are two sort of understandable reasons for arms control. My fear is that we have an arms control industry and that you have you have people that their only job is arms control and their only job is nonproliferation and their only and if you look at almost all of the the graduate programs out there they're all in nonproliferation and arms control so there's a built-in dogma that's taught that there can you know this is the only thing that's valid that's the only right option it's the when in reality sometimes that might not be the case Oh no no no! I mean, if if I mean, if I could get my hands on you right now, I'd be choking you in, with <laughs> in violent agreement. With that, uh, there's, you know, you pick you pick any complex human endeavor, and uh, and you add to that a uh, university system that trains people in a certain set of beliefs, and you're always in danger of. Uh, building up a cult of orthodoxy. And it's that cult of orthodoxy that's to be avoided. I I would maintain that as it stands right now, we're extremely fortunate that uh, the start series of treaties is going to expire. I mean, there's a strong argument for never attempting to write a, a treaty of infinite duration because of the stresses that built up. But I think the start series, think about the features, bilateral, strategic only, certain set of monitoring and verification and consultative arrangements that that make us confident that we're each in the ballpark of doing what we're supposed to do, numerical limits. And if you look at the start series, there's been considerable development from start to new start on 
numerical limits, just the concept of numerical limits and how it's done. Uh, Sublimits are gone. We're down to you figure it out. We're to operationally deployed. But still, this is, I think we'll be fortunate that uh, presuming we get through a period before we can begin to consider doing this again, I think we'll be fortunate to make a clean break. And this is one way, not everybody would agree, but this is one way of enforcing a clean break from something that doesn't work anymore. And there are multiple reasons uh, we'll why. Go them. Uh, well, number one, um, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to look at, at some, some notes I took, but uh, really uh, we, you know, what's, what's wrong here? Well, it's, we have three countries now uh, and I'm, you mentioned it. I'm not sure that we know the imp- that we fully understand and understand as well as we would need to negotiate a treaty. The, uh, that we understand uh, tripolarity. Well, Let's, to me, I, I think yeah. tripolarity is, to me, it's pretty simple. We know what the Chinese are going to do. They're going to look for parity or superiority with us. And then only at that point will they even potentially say, maybe we'll come to the table. The Russians, I don't think, are going to ever come to the table because they're always going to have to rely on their nuclear arsenal to compensate for conventional inferiority. Yeah. So I would offer my my sense is in the ballpark but somewhat dimmer, different. Number one, I do think that the Chinese are headed toward what I would call order of magnitude parity. And I actually did this, I did the math for myself the other day. So we're headed toward new start numbers, 1550 operationally deployed nuclear warheads. We got hedge, we got others stored, but 1550 on, on carriers that could function. And uh, the Chinese, according to the, there's a nice paper out from Livermore, from CGSR, with a host of authors and some very good authors on there, uh, and very good people, that says the Chinese are headed for a number like 1,400 maybe, with new MIRVED SLBMs going from one on to three on, presumably, uh, not a ton of them, but you know, it's another 200 or so and, um, or 150 and potentially, you know, a thousand new warheads in these silos in China. So they're going to, when they build it out, they're going to be like our number, but you have to remember the heavy bomber loophole in uh, new start. And that's that we count the bombers for one, but we don't count the bombs or the cruise missiles on them. And somewhere in here in, in the, the latter part of the middle of this decade, we're going to begin building new cruise missiles, air-launched nuclear-armed cruise missiles for our heavy bombers, and we're going to build over a 1,000 of them. So we're going to be within a factor of two with the Chinese. Now, you could say, yeah, but what if we, what if we add warheads? How would we do that? If you look at how 
ponderous our nuclear modernization program is. It's expensive. They battle about it on a regular basis. Or are we paying too much? Um, and that's that's going to run out into the mid-2030s to the 2040s for, to, for full completion. Building all the new S submarines, building all the new aircraft, and filling all the new... Uh, filling all the uh, silos and all the silos are going to be modernized. Uh, if you look at that, I don't, I don't look forward to, I'd never say never. It's possible. Big, big uptick in the number of carriers, missile delivery or nuclear warhead delivery vehicles, but you can upload, you can get an, you know, we got, we're building our ICBMs for one on, they could go two or three. Uh, we could maximally MERV every or most of our SLBMs. We can uh, we can get more SLBM warheads by uploading there. Uh, Russians complained about this quite a bit when we were negotiating New Start because they were at the low part of their modernization cycle. As now, as New Start expires, we're at the low part of our modernization cycle. Things are cyclic, um, and you know we can always just. Keep uh, converting more bombers to nuclear. You have to make a decision. They have to be yeah. uh, discernible. And uh, we can keep building cruise missiles if we like. So we've got a way to go up in warheads. I just don't see the number of launch vehicles or carriers uh, changing dramatically over that period of time. So one of the things that you, you, know, you oh, sort yeah. of mentioned and I sort of have this tentative agreement, but I, I want to know exactly what your rationale is. And that is on the notion that we don't truly understand tripolarity. We don't really understand what that means and what that's going to require. Can, can you go into sort of what you were talking about with that? Yeah. Um, in principle, we're going to get to a Let's not kid ourselves. These are not three independent actors. This is going to be us and the other two. Except if some unforeseen but but possible circumstance changes that. And so as long as it's us and the other two of them... We're going to have to deal with an issue that we kind of gave up on during the Trump administration conventionally, and that's to admit that uh, we can fight about 1.5 theater war theater wars. We can't get two, and uh, that was that was in the Trump national security strategy, and. Uh, uh, not not calling anybody out. Bridge Colby regularly talks about this in arguing that we need to concentrate much more on the China threat surrounding Taiwan. So, um, so I think there's a, then one begins to think about how how does escalation occur? Uh, in some regard, with three parties. The winner is the one who sits it out. 
but but maybe if two of you get into it, the third party says, whoa, I spot an opportunity. Or maybe the two parties say, you know, look, this is a great opportunity for the two of us. So we're either going to come in as allies or we're going to coordinate. You do what you're going to do. We do what we're going to do. You take this theater. We take this theater. Um, and we'll coordinate or we'll ally. We'll phase ourselves in a way so that all of a sudden one party, the U.S., has all of its limited resource, long-range transport aircraft on one coast and over one ocean or the other. And now we have to, to realign and move things around. So I think uh, thinking through how we do this, I'll, t- I'll give you another thing, tripolarity. Both Russia and China have significantly more non-strategic nuclear weapons than we do. Significantly more. This is another reason that we need to step back, I think, from, let's call it in general, not one treaty, but let's just say in general, nuclear arms control. Because if you go back all the way, to ancient history. We had START, we had ABM, we had the INF Treaty. And they kind of all grew out of initial larger scale negotiations on nuclear arms control. When, when I bring this up, look, the, the ABM Treaty, we, we want to have ballistic missile defense. Um, this is a huge hang up with the Russians. The Chinese can make it a huge hang up if they want to. Uh, but they're both def- developing missile defense systems. Maybe someday they'll have their own missile defense systems and they'll f- complain about something else. However, INF, let me clarify something on INF. Did INF die because the Russians had come up with a ground-launched cruise missile version of a sea-launched missile? Did it die because of that? Uh, ostensibly, what really killed it? What was the stake in the heart of INF, DF-26. Explain why you say that. The Chinese were out of the treaty. They they uh, rebuffed more than one Russian approach to join a treaty. DF-26 is a is an intermediate range ballistic missile. Nuclear, it's dual capable. It's swappable warheads in the field. Oh, great. Forget national technical means, or uh, you got to get a lot better at detecting those signatures and finding collection systems that can can keep you apprised of what's going on. Uh, An enormous challenge. I ain't saying that one's fixable. That's somebody else to answer. But uh, DF-26 can, can, you know, hit a lot of Russia, DF-26 can be, China can use DF-26 to deter India. They don't even have to waste strategic missiles on India and cover it with DF-26. So look, was it worth our while? Was it worth the Russians' while? You know, if you're the Russians, they're they're your pals. 
but they're still another country. It's a little bit like having a wild animal as a house pet. Now, not to, I mean, I don't want that to sound pejorative, but uh, let's, let's not call them pets. Let's, let's talk about Siegfried and Roy. They might oh, well, kind of be pets nowadays just yeah, because of yeah. their dependency on the Chinese. How much could North those Korea. tigers really be trusted? Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is a sidebar. Let me give you a sidebar that has stuck in my head. The Russians were on the road to develop a, uh, they tested it, a missile, a two-stage version of their ICBM. It was called uh, Rubege. They did a half a dozen or so tests. They once flew it to ICBM range with a single, with at, no more than a single warhead. It flew to ICBM range, and they said because this missile is flown to ICBM range, it's an ICBM. But nobody expected them to not MERV it. And you put three warheads on, and you're, now you're an intermediate-range ballistic missile with three warheads. Sounds like, sounds like SS-20 to me. So the Russians were on the path to, to deploying this missile. They had set a date for a start exhibition of the missile. And they even said the first place they were going to deploy it, they gave a unit. And it was in Irkutsk. And when you look at a map, Irkutsk is, is, you know, on the shore of Lake Baikal. It's, it's in the Russian Far East. So I saw a little YouTube video of two young Chinese guys, and they're showing Rubej, and they're showing things on their YouTube video, and they're saying, wait, wait, wait. who's this aimed at? And... The Russians dropped it and they said, look, we've only got so much money. And this could be true. This absolutely could be true. They said, we've only got so much money for the defense budget and we had to make a choice. And were we going to include avant-garde, the hypersonic, the intercontinental hypersonic glide vehicle on an SS-19 booster, which they had declared as a start, new start accountable system, are we going to have... Avant-garde, are we going to have Rubej? We're going to make a decision. Not this time for Rubej. We're not going to do it. It's not going in the budget. This was this was a system ready for this was a system ready to be declared as a start accountable system. And they were going to deploy it in the Far East. Uh DF-26 killed uh INF more than anything else. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So, you know, as I think about tripolarity, the, the 
the greatest threat, I think, for the United States is in the deterrence realm. Because what I could see easily is that China and Russia team against the U.S., not for the sake of, you know, fighting and winning a strategic nuclear war, but for the sake of coercion, coercing the U.S. into doing things. And and essentially, you know, I we've had Matt Kronig on the show to talk about, you know, he wrote a book where he talked about the importance of superiority and that, you know, in crises, in crises between two nuclear peers, that the nuclear state with the sort of the superior arsenal tends to, you know, carry the day in the crisis and the other one backs down. Yeah. And so if, if, if we have a crisis, you know, with Russia or China or, and the two join and say, Hey, we're, you know, we're this, we're in this together, United States, you need to back down. We, you know, we've got 3000 weapons against your 1550 then the U.S. is in a position where very well likely we'll have to back down. It'll be sort of in an unprecedented position of weakness. And, you know, that to me is the most concerning part of this new tripolarity. And then I don't ever hear anybody, uh, you know, I, I listened to the to the Kim Jong-un speech where he was said he was looking for parity. Again, I think the word he used was parity. He might have used a different one. Um, with the United States, he he was essentially saying he was going to be our peer. Now, mm-hmm. whether he gets fifteen fifty or you know what he considers parity, I'm not sure. Good luck with that. But I mean, he can certainly build hundreds. Yep. You know, several hundred at least. Yep. Um, and if you throw in his several hundred, and then you know we've got the Iranians enriching to eighty six percent. So they're they're right there. They're not far off, and they're we we gave them back all of we. How many billions did we return uh, to them after uh, we signed? I don't want to call it a treaty because it wasn't, but after we signed the Iran deal and started giving them all their money back, and they of course used it for ballistic missile programs, and so now they've got really good ballistic missiles, and they've enriched to eighty six percent. We You're might selling have the Russians run. drones. Selling the Russians. Well, the North Koreans, you know, they just had a big uh, parade a few months. You know, what was it, a month ago maybe? And yeah. you, you had Xi was there, and, of course, Putin was there. And, and I think you could see Kim Jong-un saying, hey, look, a lot of this is for sale. He was up yeah. on the podium with Putin. And, you know, once you could potentially have Iran, a nuclear Iran, a Korea with hundreds, a pure China, and, you know, Russia, and Russia with, you know, up to 6,000, you know, intermediate, medium, short, tactical nuclear weapons. And the the Chinese have, you know, you said the DF-26, they've got some, some other shorter range weapons. And we essentially have you know, a few submarines in the Pacific. That's what we're going to hold, you know, the Pacific accountable with. Well, this raises a host of issues. Number one, your issue about your point about coercion. As our friends at Strategic 
command tell us every time uh, they're flying the STRATCOM flag. We do deterrence every day. Deterrence is a daily business. It's not a one-time conflict business. And in that regard, you're right. The, and, and I've seen Matt's analysis. It's quantitative. Uh, he's not making it up. I mean, he's he goes to the, you know, he looks at, at conflicts between nuclear states and notices a preponderance of positive outcomes for the superior uh, party in, in those situations. Uh, so that's an issue. And it's not just, you know, coercion is a... Coercion can be a very subtle thing. It's just things quit going your way. And it's loss of confidence by allies. And all of a sudden, we find that South Korea and maybe even Japan, harder historical reasons, uh, are in trade agreements that include China, but not us. And we find the Filipinos swing back toward the east or toward the west, the way they did under Duterte and have swung the other way with Marcos now. And we find out that all of a sudden our friends are not quite as tightly bound to us. So those kinds of things can happen. Then we get into the regional nuclear powers. And, uh, you know, don't miss the feature when you read, you know, Putin's withdrawal from New Start was it was at the end of a very long statement to um, very long speech to an assembled body. And at the end, he withdrew from, from New Start and, or he suspended, suspended. New Start. Suspended. suspended, to be correct. And in there, he mentioned the French and the British nuclear weapon systems. And if you think about it, if you ever want to try to do anything with non-strategic nuclear weapons. And we surrendered a great deal of our leverage there at the end of the Cold War. But if you ever want to do anything, it could very well be reasonable that you have to have regional non-strategic nuclear weapons pacts. And you have to, you do have to take account of France and uh, the UK to get someplace, to get somewhere with the Russians. Now, that flies in the face of how we did INF. The Russians wanted the Germans in on INF because they had Pershing ones and we had warheads to put on them. And we said, no, 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 we're not doing that. How did we solve that? We left the Germans out, but we included... The shorter range, SS-23, the Spider, and there's still, you can still find Russians who get all weepy-eyed about giving up and PO'd that they gave up Spider along with SS-20. But what happened after, after all the dust settled on INF is the Germans scrapped their Pershing ones. Uh it's an argument that there are times where you can get an unsigned agreement to make it work. The, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and Turkish uh, Jupiter missiles, uh, there are examples. I, I think that the PNIs are a counterexample of how that doesn't work on non-strategic nuclear weapons. So 
those were a couple of points that got raised when you begin to began to raise different points in the Far East. You know, the Chinese are going to say, well, we got a problem with India. We can't get into a treaty with you. We got a deterrence issue with India, to which I would say, no, that's an intermediate range issue. Don't make this impossible. Don't act like you're getting out of it, because I think there's a point beyond which if China's not in, the U.S. should be out on strategic arms control agreement. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Unfortunately, though, you know, that's the great thing about these conversations you and I have. And, you know, for the listeners, John and I will have these sort of extended conversations on email. He's he's a prolific uh, email writer. He's uncontrollable. <laughs> he's uncontrollable. <laughs> so, you know, so you'll you know, and as as you've listened throughout the podcast, he's got like six thoughts running, at, you know, at any one time. And so John is just a, a bundle of, of ideas and thoughts. And so you, uh, you got to listen today to one of these sort of conversations that we often have where we're talking about four or five different things sort of simultaneously. And it was, to me, it was sort of a good way to bounce ideas because I like that's, you know, this was to me more than anything, our conversation today was a chance to bounce some ideas back and forth. Just in, in terms of two things being, you know, are, is there sort of a future for arms control? And then secondly, what does all this tripolarity stuff mean? You know, what is it, you know, how do we need to think about it? What are some of the kind of issues? And you sort of pulled some threads in areas that I hadn't really thought about. And so to me, that's helpful as, because tripolarity is still a young thing. I mean, we're yes. sort of in this period you know, we're like in the early 1950s. We're not long after, uh, you know, Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. We're, that's yeah. sort of where we are in the tripolar period. We're, we're at that point of where we're trying to, you know, dance around each other to see, you know, what, what the other countries are, what our adversaries are going to do. Yeah. So, And, you know, look, nobody of the three parties – I don't think I don't think either the Russians or the Chinese are at all ready to do this right now. Uh, I think it's part of the information war surrounding Ukraine for Putin to suspend the treaty. He's making a statement and he uh, he finds it to be useful at times to make nuclear threats and get at least a class of people all wound up. Uh, there was an interesting short piece in Foreign Affairs recently, in, and I can't recall the author, but it, the author said, it's in the Chinese interest right now uh, to be, to be non-transparent. It may not be working for them. The, there's a recent Pew Institute uh, poll out, and China is slipping in international popularity. Look, they're pushing people around. They used to hide behind the fact that they were a growing power and they used to try to throw their arms around the other G77 countries and say, hey, look, us unaligned countries, you know, we shouldn't be held accountable by these big guys pushing us around. And they're losing that. They're giving that. You got to, that's got to go. You got to give on that. So, uh, but for the time being, it works it works for China. 
And for anybody who thinks that national technical means are going to be the total answer, let's see how confident we are in the end that it isn't, to name one person, one advocate of the idea, Jeffrey Lewis's uh, shell game. And I don't say that, you know, pejoratively. Jeffrey Lewis's shell game, or are they going to do a full loadout on all of those ICBM silos? Which is it going to be? And we need to know for tripolarity. I tell you what, we are, you know, we're out of time for today, but what we need to do is we need to remember this date and come back next, you know, next September and have this same discussion and see a year later if there's much has changed or if we have a better sense of how this is going to work. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, we're still going to be talking about, are we ever going to have nuclear arms control in a year? I guarantee you that. Am I seeing you next week? Yes, you are. Okay, good. We'll talk in person. Then, then, you know, I can use bad language as I am wont to do. Well, thanks for joining us again, John. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this back and forth discussion and We talked about a handful of topics today. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for hanging with us. And we'll see you on the next episode of NucleCast. So anytime I have a chance to to talk with Sweagle, I always know I'm going to have, you know, I might want to talk about one thing, but we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things as well. Because John is always trying to pull strands from many things. He's one of the most brilliant guys I know. And so our conversation today was a pretty far-ranging one. And, you know, it was it always helps me when I talk with John to have him pull in things that I'm not necessarily thinking about because he as a physicist thinks of things that, you know, I as is an IR guy, I'm not always thinking about. And so that's why it's, you know, I like, it's sort of that iron sharpens iron. And that was, you know, today's conversation was, was really some of that just sharing thoughts and, you know, seeing where that matches because we're talking about the future of arms control and what does tripolarity look like, which is, these are really sort of two topics that are unsettled and we're not exactly sure where the future is going to lie and so it was great to talk to john about them this has been a production of the anwa deterrence center our executive producer is kimberly charrington and this episode has been engineered and mixed by david Grunthal. follow the show on linkedin facebook and twitter at nuclecast listen follow and review the show on spotify apple Podcasts, amazon music or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts